delivery, it goes So thank you for joining me today on the Woman by Definition podcast, Sheila Jeffries. My pleasure. Uh, so we're here to talk about mostly um, the launch of your brand new book, which is an autobiography called Trigger Warning, My Lesbian Feminist Life, uh, which you you have to order online, people, if you want to read it. You can't just walk in a, a shop and get it, but it's, it's well worth it. Um, you talk about in your book being feisty, which is something I can identify with. Do you think that part of you do you think you were born like that or do you think you were made like when did you know that you were feisty well i don't think it's something innate but i think that there was feistiness in my family particularly with my sisters who were who roared with laughter at the dinner table and were a little bit rude and i think quite feisty so i might have grown up with some good examples the first time I realized that I was a bit feisty was when we came back from where I spent my childhood, early childhood in Malta, because my father was in the army. And I went to a local school in Witten in Middlesex. And I had a new teacher, of course, and he wanted me to call him Sir, whereas the teacher I admired in Malta did not require that. He was just Mr. Laws. So I said, no, I, I don't want to call you, sir. I don't know why I have to do that. And the teacher made me kneel in the middle of the classroom until I was prepared to call him, sir. I didn't do that. And I guess he eventually had to let me get up. So I realized that I was a little bit different. The, the, the children called me Dot's Daughter of the Sun, and some of them were quite aggressive. I can remember on my way home having being attacked by two boys who were slightly younger than me in the grounds of the officers' married quarters where we lived. And I had a briefcase, and I whirled around like a whirling dervish with the briefcase out in front of me until they actually had to go away. So I did defend myself, I think it's reasonable to say, at that time. Sounds intriguing. Do you remember what it was when you were kneeling? Do you remember the conversation in your own head about what you were doing? Do you, do you remember that? I can't. I was 10 years old. And it's true that I didn't like him because he actually didn't like my artwork. I was painting horses all the time and he didn't like that. He didn't like my horses. So I had reasons to dislike this man anyway. Well, I think that's a great reason, to be fair. Um, you've, you've had a life enriched by natural beauty, so growing up in Malta. Um, you've also talked about Melbourne being a particularly beautiful place and, and everything in between. Do you think the, the beauty around you has given you a, a sort of a hopeful disposition? I don't know that that is the case. And I, I think it is a good question why all the way through I've managed to keep going, you know, in the, in the period I call the doldrums where there was no real feminism. I always kept going. So there must be something naturally hopeful in me. I don't think it's about the natural world, although I've always been enormously keen on the nat natural world. And as a child, had uh, I wasn't allowed to have a dog. I would have liked a dog more than anything. And my father uh, threw the little kitten that we had down the stairs, swinging it around his head by the tail. So it was quite difficult um, for me to pursue my interests in the natural world and animals, but I absolutely loved animals. I was in the Society for the Protection of Animals in North Africa, which was mainly about donkeys. And I was in an anti-vivisection organization. Um, and animals were a huge love and they still are. I don't know if they helped me to be optimistic. I'm not sure if there's a connection there. Um, so do you remember growing up then, do you remember women or 
or, or men even that, that you admired that you sort of set your sights on? No, I actually don't. I think when I was a teenager, my my sisters in particular were determined to turn me out being just, um, you know, uh, ordinary 50s girls like themselves. They were quite a bit older than me, although my sisters were not always kind. Uh, my older sister told me that I had a nose that was stuck on hot and my arms were too fat. So you know, they weren't always kind, but they did teach me makeup and all that kind of stuff, which I found difficult. Um, so they did all that kind of thing. I don't think there was anybody that I looked up to and admired, except that my sister, my older sister looked like Arthur Gardner, I always thought. I, maybe I thought I should look like that. Um, that never happens any. Um, but as to admiring other women, no, I don't think until, I think it was, I think I went, I, I talked to men. I, I assumed indeed that I had at some point a brain more like a man's because women were interested in the sorts of things I wasn't interested in. I really wasn't interested in clothes or makeup particularly uh, and so on. So I talked to men all the time until I realized that I was not a man. I can remember this, the very beginning of my being a feminist. I was lying underneath the sort of stereo player that we had in the house. You know, I'd have my ear against the speaker. I can remember, can't remember what was being said, but I suddenly struck me in my mind. I am not a man. People think of me, even my male friends, as a woman. That was a shock to me. It was a big shock to me. I couldn't go around thinking I was going to be just, just like the boys in my head anymore. That was kind of the moment of my feminist awakening. At the same time as I realized that everything in the world I was living in was composed and created by men, or of the pavements on which I walked, the houses in which we lived, which had the woman in the kitchen and hidden away and doing the housework like the housekeeper always would have done, all of those things, I began to realize that the world was constructed in the image of men and not mine. But it was a big shock to me. It was a big shock to me. So on that then, what did you think of, what did you think the differences were between men and women? Did you see women as lesser or just not you? I think I saw actually before I became a feminist, that women were not tremendously interesting because of their topics of conversation. Men were funnier, they did jokes in public space and just generally more interesting. When I became a feminist, of course, particularly when I went to um, women's centers and saw women actively you know, reproducing newsletters and producing books and all sorts of things, I thought, wow. You know, women were suddenly completely, completely fascinating. Women were able to do all of the things that I previously thought probably that only men could do. And you know, the energy was extraordinary. So I fell in love with this extraordinary strong community of women doing all of these things, which was so, so different. Mm. This was the early 1970s. So, you know, we're talking about a different time. So that feeling then, thinking about that feeling of that first rush of, wow, there is, there are women <laughs> that are also interesting. Um, have you had that sort of, that surge since? Did it, did it continue to climb and climb until, I don't know, until everybody lost their, their minds in the late 80s? Yes, I think so. I mean, I was in the most amazing community. Women had a great deal to break out of, you know. You probably were not born then, but, you know, you weren't supposed to really go into a pub if you didn't have a man with you and all those kinds of things. So I had to break away from all of that. And yes, once I'd found women and the extraordinary intelligence of women and the, the feminist theory and the way women could put things together, yes, that just grew and grew. 
until of course eventually um, after a few years I decided that I needed to be a lesbian. It's a very interesting decision um, and one I'm going to ask you about uh, a bit later. Um, now I'm not going to lie I've totally avoided reading beauty and misogyny harmful cultural practices in the west because I'm a little bit of a paid-up member of they must be doing something for me on a personal level that means I'm not willing to give them up. Um, and this is like so many women, obviously. Is this a false economy for me? To not read the book and not choose to make any personal changes of that kind. <laughs> I mean, the fact is, in, in the early and uh, mid-70s, women were giving up mu uh, beauty practices on a massive scale. You know, when I was in the late 60s, I wore false eyelashes. I had different kinds of uh, eyeshadow going up to my eyebrows. I, I did everything. You know, I wore the false eyelashes in bed and woke up in the morning and found that they were flopping at the edges. I did all of that. When I became a feminist, that was one of the huge revelations because mm -hmm. feminism was based on the idea that the personal is political, so you make personal changes. When I realized I didn't have to do any of that, I stopped the depilation, I stopped bleaching my hair, which was mid-golden sable, and I remember walking into the university one day and thinking, nobody will recognize me because I didn't have any makeup on, I obviously didn't look like me, and a male friend just bowed up and said, hi Sheila, and I said, how did you recognize me? You know, I mean, it really was, it was a huge and massive change. So. We all did that. I mean, really, feminists didn't do beauty practices because we saw them as oppressive and as part of women's subordination in those days. But of course, after the 1980s, there was a big going back. It wasn't unisex anymore. It was a real sort of going back to the 50s. High heel shoes came in. I didn't realize the extent to which that was the case until really the early 2000s when I uh, was seeing women you know, falling down in the street, actually falling down in the street because of these horrendous shoes they were wearing, which are still there, of course. The newsreaders wear these horrendous crippling shoes that they probably only put on once they enter the studio because you cannot wear in them. So they're just doing fetish object stuff so that the camera can linger on them. So when I realized that all of this was coming back on me, it was much worse. You know, there were women actually having to, to shave the area around their vulvas. There was um, much more plastic surgery happening, far more breast implants, which is a very serious form of violence against women's bodies. I thought, this is absolutely shocking. All of those critiques that we used to have have been forgotten. I need to write a book. So I wrote Beauty and Misogyny at that time. And what I argue in there, because I taught international feminist politics, so I was very aware of the um, women's human rights understanding of some practices being harmful cultural practices, the main one being female genital mutilation, which of course is now done in plastic surgery on women uh, to make their labia look better. And I've got a big section on that in the book. So I thought that this understanding, uh, these uh, harmful cultural practices, which come from, which are justified by tradition, which come from women and girls to inferior status and which are harmful to our health. I thought, great, that analysis actually explains beauty practices in the West. The West is normally seen as this civilized advanced place that doesn't have harmful practices. But clearly there are very, very serious harmful practices going on against women, which are harmful to their health. And it's specifically against women. I mean, men are not, unless they're autogynophiles and excited by the masochism, 
going around in high-heeled shoes, showing large parts of their body, depilating, etc. That's men are not do not have to do that because men have the right to walk out of the house swinging along with their hands in their pockets on flat in flat shoes, bodies covered. They have the rights of the superior class, and very very lucky they are. But women have constantly to be on display, as I explain in the book. It's a bit like sort of an outdoor brothel. Um, men get excited and, and have erections, indeed, in being able to see women all dolled up for their pleasure in public space. And, of course, are extremely aggressive towards those who will not comply. I remember being called on a website by some man from my university picture. She looks like a bulldog. They really, really don't like it if you don't cause them to have erections by the beauty practices you're doing on your body. Of course, it takes up huge amounts of time. I also said in that book that if women didn't do beauty practices all the time, which one survey suggested was the average of 20 minutes a day, but 45 if the woman was going out, then she'd save about three years of her life and be able to learn Korean or any other language that was quite complicated. So it takes up a huge amount of time, a huge amount of money as well. And of course, there's all the anxiety about how do I look and touching up makeup and all that kinds of stuff. Uh, and the practices are painful. They distort the body, they destroy the feet and so on. So there are many, many reasons why beauty practices need to be criticized all over again, because very much that critique has gone. It's it's simply not out there now, whereas we all understood it in the 1970s. Mm. I mean, uh, the the stilettos that came back, I kind of thought they would never come back in my lifetime. And then uh, I took one of my children to a prom and, and I don't wear high heel shoes. My feet are far too small anyway, but I find them uncomfortable. So I've never worn them. But the teacher was there that with girls with very low cut dresses these are 16 year old girls with much flesh on display and these crippling shoes that some of them had already taken off within five minutes of standing outside waiting for the prom to start and I said to the teacher oh isn't it terribly sad that these girls feel they have to wear that and she said well I've told them it's one of your life lessons that you learn." <laughs> But you learn to um, you learn to cope with the pain of stilettos, and I said, I think the message could have been you don't have to wear them, girls. That would have been, but it's it's so much younger. Is it not younger? Are, are we? Is it just because I'm forty six that I think it's younger and younger people that are taking up these practices? No, I, I think it is going down and down and down. And as I, when I corrected the, added extra bits to the book when it was republished in 2014, I came across all of these parties, teachings of seven, eight-year-old girls to put on makeup. There's loads and loads of women entrepreneurs setting up these companies. There are loads of special makeup for children, which presumably doesn't have all the very harmful chemicals in that are very, very dangerous to women who wear it. And uh, it, it's a huge business. Putting this makeup onto children is a massive business now. And of course, there are for babies in um, prams, there are little stiletto shields, little shoes, little plastic shoes they can wear with stilettos on the end so that they have them in the pram. I mean, it's an extraordinary indoctrination and grooming process that girls, of course, struggle to get out of because they have to learn not to do all of those things. And as I talk about in the book, 
the when girls reach um, puberty and they're supposed to be starting to think about doing all of these practices, it's often a very, very big crisis for girls because they're no longer supposed to wear trousers and climb trees. They've got to fashion the whole way they use their body and what they put on their body to meet the, uh, the sexual corvée, as I call it in the book, the unpaid labor women have to do to sexualize themselves for men's satisfaction. So adolescence is often a, a, a huge, a huge problem for girls, but much more so now, of course, because with the development of the pornography industry, being a girl has become something very, very frightening for many girls. They're not in a position to, you know, when I was 12 years old, I was only interested in conkers. I think it's quite difficult for girls to even think about that now. So we have the problem of girls transgendering and transitioning to try and become boys because it's so obvious that the situation of boys has so much more freedom and possibilities. So I guess for girls, they either, they, they have a choice. They can either play the game and be these sexualized objects for the pleasure of men, or if they don't want to play the game, there's an alternative, but it's equally, if not more so, well, I don't know if it's more so harmful, but it's also harmful. It seems like there's, there's not much choice just to reject both of it. No, there really isn't. I mean, when I came into feminism in you know, 1973, my very first group was a women teachers group, and we worked on sex stereotyping in children's textbooks. That was the big issue for us. So that, you know, Janet and John books, they were, the, John wasn't doing the car with the father and Janet wasn't in the kitchen with the apron on. That's all what was happening at the time. And we thought we'd get rid of what was called at that time sex role stereotyping. That was a very, very basic entry point to feminism for me. And now we're having to struggle or again, where there's such very serious sex role stereotyping that actually girls are feeling that they need to exit into another stereotype, uh, which is somehow being a boy or a man. So it's all come back in a very, very serious way. We really thought we would fight that. And so that men and women could be equal human beings, not two separate castes in a, a hierarchy. So on that point specifically, do you think that um, this new enemy, which is still the rigid boxes, but almost not being allowed to talk about them, so they're still very rigid, it's almost a, um, an invisible enemy, if you like, because it's so insidious. Do you think that's a harder fight than when we just, when you were just moving forward, trying to just abolish the sex stereotypes in the beginning? I think it is because it's now society-wide. It's a massive political trap that we are in where women are basically being told that um, gender is, again, essential. Gender is what we used to call sex role stereotyping. We're in this extraordinary situation now where governments pass legislation like the Gender Recognition Act in the UK in 2004 where they actually recognize in law sex role stereotypes, because, of course, men can't become women. They can only say that they've got an essence of gender which landed on them by some miracle which causes them to want to shave their legs or do whatever it is. So it's an extraordinary situation where gender is being imposed upon women by law. And in fact, women are not allowed to actually say things like men can't become women. They're not allowed to criticize this idea of this essential gender that floats about and men may accidentally get. 
it's actually the law is now being used against us. So it's a long way from a little group of teachers looking at children's textbooks and saying, oh, that's not very good. We're going to criticize that. We, it, we're now, it's all being imposed upon us politically, legally, in an extraordinary way. So I have um, a lot of uh, men who would definitely not uh, identify with feminism. In fact, think feminism is some sort of uh, assault on um, reason, which I clearly disagree with them. But they often talk about feminism bringing about the word gender and then gender being this thing that's now being used against feminists. Um, what do you think? think of that argument I mean clearly I don't agree with it I'm not saying that I agree at all but there is there's something about that word gender that seemed to trigger give you a trigger warning that seemed to trigger all of this other stuff how would you answer those people I think well um there's a complicated history to this word gender I mean, obviously, it was it was invented by sexologists back in the 1950s to suggest the the sort of social conditioning that was placed upon the biology biological differences between men and women. Uh, it was picked up by feminists, and they said uh, some feminists, socialist feminists, not my kind of feminist, in the 70s and 80s, used the word gender, and I think they used it as a euphemism because you know women is a rather bold statement and frightens a lot of people we're not supposed to use the word anymore um male power male violence all those things seem you know very very rude to say if you talk about gender gender differences gender hierarchy etc it sounds all more cozy and fluffy and it doesn't mention men at all so i think gender got picked up as a euphemism it became absolutely necessary in the academy you couldn't get away with anything without using the term gender you weren't supposed to talk about men or women anymore or male anything and so on and the word gender became a euphemism and a very very serious problem because then there are people that started to say gender instead of sex which became very uh, confusing you'd have forms that said identify your gender or, or it, they had boxes saying gender male female of course when, when forms were not just on the internet, I was able to write, write no thank you. But when they are on the internet, you're not really in a position to do that. So gender, the euphemism, came to take over sex. Then it created huge confusion. I think we need to go back to sex and sexual stereotyping. And we need to be clear. I mean, it is a complicated history, and I can't, obviously, explain all of it in, in a short um, moment here but the word gender is now something we need to get rid of I really think we do gender is sex role stereotyping we can get rid of it we need to talk about sex women's human rights are based on sex they're not based on gender yeah and so when did gender come in because in the you you found feminism in the 70s did, were people talking about gender then we weren't the radical feminist circles in which I moved were only talking about sex and sex role stereotyping. We talked about women being a sex class or a sex caste. We absolutely didn't use the word gender. The word gender came in, I think, from some academic socialist feminists really in the late 1970s and spread a bit around, got spread around a bit in the UN and in international public circles where you couldn't really talk about women, it was too dangerous. So it was useful to have that euphemism, I think. But certainly, originally, we never used the term gender, and I try never to use it to this day. Good. I think that's, uh, I totally agree with you. Um, and 
when your feminist awakening came and you discovered all these women uh, and intelligent women who were much more than maybe you'd give them credit for before, uh, how did it feel to understand the mechanisms? Did you go through a spell of maybe, grief is probably the wrong word, but, but uh, once you'd seen it, you can't unsee it. Did you have any moments where you wished you maybe couldn't see it or was it just too damn exciting? No, it was just wonderment. I'd sit in an underground train and think, men develop this and they develop this in their own interests. It was just, it was just an extraordinary opening up of everything. And how do you square it then? Because obviously you still live in this same world as, as all the rest of us, but you understand it perhaps from a perspective that everything is a man's world and, and everything is created for men. Uh, how do you continually square that with yourself? I, I find it more and more difficult. I, find, I particularly find it difficult these days just watching the television. I, I mentioned news presenters earlier. I think it's absolutely extraordinary that these highly intelligent, talented women have to sit there with fetish shoes arranged to be photographed when, or stand in them, which is even more difficult, and they all have to do it. And the hair, the, the hair is extraordinary now. A lot of presenters and women in public life have hair that comes down to their breasts in huge false curls. Mm -hmm. I think they're, they're bought from poor women in Thailand and added in. It's, it's absolutely fetishized. So women are totally fetishized for men's delight because um, it, the, the hair satisfies um, women's, uh, uh, men's interest in uh, women's hair that used to be in the early 1900s when there were um, trams that a man would sit next to a girl and snap off a bit of her hair because he would take it home to um, ejaculate on. Um, hair fetishism is a big thing for men and it's a big part of their fetishistic behavior. So the fact that there are women having to look so extraordinary does make me feel a bit like an alien living in the world. I know there are lots and lots of women who are rejecting these practices, but in the public world, everything that's acceptable and seen as okay and respectable it, on women is pretty much fetish. Fetishism and shoe fetishism, hair fetishism, and so on. It's really bonkers when you think that pretty much, unless a woman does go along with that, she's not fully equipped to take a public-facing role on the TV. No. No, she's absolutely not, because they pretty much all do it. So they're in pain as they stand there. They are depilated. They, you know, they've done all of these things to themselves. Whereas men, have you noticed this? Men are able to wear suits, perfectly ordinary loose suits and flat shoes and short hair. I mean, how extraordinary. The very difference between the man and the woman presenter on the television tells you the terrible situation of women, it shows you the subordination of women in really in a really clear picture and shows how far we are away from even beginning to imagine equality. How do you think women, so many women have been duped? Because you talk about it's, you know, it's not just, it's not stupid women. These are academic women, often very intelligent, bright, engaging. You know, they're good enough to get the job in the first place. And I'm assuming that part of getting that job must have been their ability to do the job just not not just the way they look why are so many of us and i'll probably include myself why do we go along with it well that's a not 
Um, that's not something I can completely explain because, of course, I did give it up um, and I have not gone back to doing any of that. I can remember in the early 80s, um, some women who'd done all this, given everything up, suddenly coming out and coming to a meeting wearing a string of pearls or something. I'd say, what the hell are you doing? What the hell are you doing? And they would say to me, oh, I can be more effective inside than out. I need to get into these institutions and then I'm going to be more effective. Really believe that. I wasn't sure about that because I've been able to manage to look like I do and write all kinds of books and be quite effective without doing that. So I'm not quite sure. I mean, a lot of women say, and I'm sure you've heard this, um, I don't do it for men, I do it for myself or other women. They sometimes say, I do it for myself or other women, which is an extraordinary thing uh, because, of course, you know, it's painful, takes up all this time, undermines confidence. And of course, th there's no reason why women would be doing this simply for themselves. If men don't do it for themselves, you know, why don't women, men do it for themselves? Uh, if it's such a lovely thing, and you know, so nice, why aren't they doing it? Well, it's because it's about subordination. And it's a harmful practice. I can't explain to you, but I think women do enter into these strange arguments in their heads about it makes me feel better. Well, why does it make you feel better? Why can't you go out bare-faced? I did consider when I was writing Beauty and Misogyny that I might call it bare-faced cheek. Uh, because that's what it is. The right to go out barefaced is is a right of power. The powerful can go out bareheaded, barefaced, comfortable, and women are simply not allowed to do that. I guess for some women, it's the idea that without it, you are somehow less. And and the, I guess the rationale for that is that part of the value is beauty which is obviously not something that men have to contend with which goes back to the subordination and every point you've probably ever made on the issue but I guess for some women they feel that there is power I think Douglas Murray talks about this and I totally disagree there is power in being attractive but you can't have power in being attractive is that if the person who is attracted to you is is more powerful can you but also it's, it's a problem that women are expected to exist in the world for men, and men's attention to them is a huge part of whether they feel a reasonable person or not. I remember, you know, 20 years ago now, giving a talk at a women's business association in Queensland, and I was talking to a lovely woman who was probably about 60, and she was telling me that she had been a feminist in her youth and so on, and she was wearing lipstick. And I said, well, I wonder why you wear lipstick. And she said, oh, she said, I've only just started. I've only just started. I've only just started because I've realized that nobody notices me anymore. And she meant men. So in other words, her significance in the world was that men did notice her. And that is what women are for, to please men. And if men are not noticing them, they can feel, who are they? Do they exist? And this was a really intelligent woman. I really, really liked her. So the fact that a woman is so damaged in her self-esteem that actually she can only be happy in the world if men give her the right kind of recognition, that is a tragedy, but that must have a lot to do with women putting this makeup on. Of course, the problem is women age. They can no longer be the, the, the sexy objects that men really want. So then women have a tragedy of aging. Actually, lesbians don't have a tragedy of aging. I didn't have a tragedy of aging because I never, you know, that for me it was the most marvelous thing of all when men stopped noticing me. 
when they stopped harassing me on the tube train and so on and so on. It's marvelous, it's freedom in the world. But for a lot of women, they experience tragedy in midlife when men are not excited anymore. Mm. Um, it just reminds me that uh, I had a friend who took her mother, who was about 65, to a hairdresser's. And the, <laughs> the mother was sat here and the daughter had often gone to the hairdresser's and the hairdresser looked at the daughter and said, what does she want? Didn't even address, <laughs> didn't even address the woman. Um, which I think is, is staggering, but I, I understand that happens quite frequently. I'm sure that it does. I mean, men do not exist in the world for women. They don't go through their whole lives being worried that they're aging, that they might have a baggy something or other because women may not be as excited and may not look at them. Imagine the freedom that they have. Oh, and that I have, and all women who remove themselves from these practices have. Well, talking about removing from practices, you also removed yourself from uh, men uh, romantically. And you, in your book, you talk about choosing to be a lesbian. What does that, how did you get to the choice? And what does that choice actually mean? Is it a rejection of men or is it an embracing of, of women? What does, what does it mean? Well, I think both of those things are involved. Uh, when I, I, in 1977, I wrote a paper for a conference yeah. in London called The Need for Revolutionary Feminism. Um, and a lot of women really liked what I was saying. I said that feminism needs to be based on women's bodies because men possess women's bodies. They keep control over women's reproduction. And that's the very basis of the subordination of women. Um, and some women said, oh, we've got to create this thing called revolutionary feminism. Uh, and then sometime later, they invited um, women to a meeting to talk about whether you can be a heterosexual revolutionary feminist. And I was heterosexual at the time, but I was already becoming aware of a set of ideas within feminism which said, uh, if, you, if you love women, as certainly I did at that time, uh, in a general sense, and if you're fighting for women, and if your whole life is going to be about women, why would you choose to go home in the evening to somebody who doesn't understand your experience? So I went along to this meeting, and I said, I agree with you. And I think I describe in the book the moment that I realized that I didn't want to be with men in my life anymore was when I was watching the television with my lodger and my boyfriend at that time, and it was um, a play, probably the Armchair Theatre, which used to be on television at that time, which was marvellous. And there was a, a teacher in a classroom and um, one of the students, teenage students, put his hand up her skirt. I was completely horrified because, of course, I knew exactly what that would feel like. I was a teacher. Um, I was horrified. And I watched, looked at the two the men on either side of me, both of whom were just watching the telly, completely unmoved. <laughs> and I thought, that's it. That's it for me. I, I could not spend the rest of my life with someone who had a no ability to understand that and an understanding from within who really, really understood that. But at the same time, uh, there, I was aware of the, the community of women. I, every, I was doing everything with women. So it seemed odder and odder to come home to Dave um, because I was going to women's discos, I was going to conferences and meetings, and there was such excitement. There'd be such erotic excitement, too, in the room with those women. It was tremendously exciting in every way to be with them. So it isn't as if I decided I would no longer be with these two men 
um, and, and just move into a void. There was an extraordinary excitement I was moving into. So I asked both of those men to move out and they did and they bought a flat together. But it's not as if, um, you know, it was without incident. I can remember being on the tube one day and being really upset about how David would feel and so on. But I knew that it was something I had to do. And I have to say that unlike very many women, I had not had bad experiences with men. I had, had only had very reasonable experiences in all my relationships with men. It's also fair to say that I never loved them in the way that I loved women romantically and passionately as well. I mean, it became clear to me that there was a considerable distinction, but whilst I was with men, I didn't know that. Do you think every woman can choose to be a lesbian? I think they can, but of course it depends on what the situation is. I mean, as I say, I had that extraordinarily exciting community around me to move into um, there is, there was in the 1950s the belief that both sexuality and what we now call gender uh, were fixed, uh, that you know, women would automatically not be very good at certain things, but be very good on working at assembly lines in factories, but they wouldn't be able to make cars and, and so on and so on. So all of that was understood, and there were very old-fashioned psychiatrists who would do tests proving that that was the case. It was said about race as well, that black people in America were less intelligent, and they did these tests to, to prove that. So all of these things were assumed to be biological in the 1950s. Then with the flowering of the social scientists, there was an understanding of social construction that actually women's subordination, the roles that were forced upon us, the limitations around us were socially constructed. It was understood that it was an absurd idea that black people were less intelligent than white people and so on. So all of these, these terrible restrictive political ideas were, were overthrown. It was true of sexuality as well. We did understand that sexuality was socially constructed. We understood that heterosexuality, rather than just being the fact that you might like to be with men, was actually a political institution because it is necessary for women to be in individual relationships with men in order that women's labor in all of its different forms can be exploited. So the women are not paid, of course. I mean, some of the forms are obviously reproductive, producing children, men are able to own them if they're in control of individual women, whether it's in an arranged marriage or in concubinage or, or wherever it is. So there's the production of children, there's the emotional labor, women always saying, it's all right, Jack, I'm sure you'll get that promotion, you're really very good. Uh, there's what I call the unpaid, um, labor towards the man's job. You know, women are supposed to do the dinner parties and they're supposed to throw the launches and take around the canapes and the volavants um, and do all of the emotional labor to try and help the man in his business and that's all unpaid. They of course do all of the labor in the house or they are entirely in charge of bringing in the outsiders to do it. They have to, to, to organize the cleaners and the gardeners and, and, and the cleaning of the shirts and the so on and the so on. And then there's the sexual labor the vast majority of women have allowed sexual access to their bodies when, it, when they really didn't want to do that. You know, they were tired or they weren't interested or they were no longer interested in that sort of thing in their marriage. They would rather have been reading a book or doing something else. In fact, in the work I did looking at what the sexologists were saying in the construction of female sexuality and the imposition of male sexuality on women in the 1950s, one of the complaints that a husband came to a sexologist with was that his wife would continue to read a book while she was uh, sexually penetrated. Another woman continued to paint her toenails. Imagine that. Oh, she um, must have a steady hand. 
think so. I think so. And these men were absolutely furious. But the women were just saying defiantly, you want to treat me like an object. You're treating me like an object. I will carry on doing what I want to do. Now, there's a, uh, there's a lot of this still around. And there's um, an extraordinary book called The Sex Diaries by um, this um, Bettina Arndt, who's an Australian um, sex advisor. She doesn't have any qualifications in this. And she talks about women being the sex supply. And she did these diaries with all these women over 60, who were some of whom were actually not being sexually used by their husbands. And the, the women who got the best marks were the ones who dressed up in sort of little little feather tutus whilst they were cooking, so their husbands were excited and could see their buttocks and so on. I mean, extraordinary stuff. But that's all still out there. That book was published by my university press, University of Melbourne Press. So the, the requirement of, of the of sexual usage of women is a part of the work that all women have to do. I'm not saying there aren't some women who are terribly excited still about having sexual relations with their husbands three, 30 or 40 years in. They probably are. But I would say that an awful lot of women are not, but they are required to do it. It's one of those forms of work. So the only way that men can get those forms of work from women, all of those forms of work, is through the institution of heterosexuality, through marrying women or having relationships with women, through which those forms of work are extracted. So in that sense, heterosexuality is a political institution that is enforced. That's the reason why, at the moment in schools, girls are being told that it's reasonable to want to be a boy, but not reasonable to want to be a lesbian. So heterosexuality is imposed. Girls are not taught that you can, for instance, you don't have to use birth control if you're a lesbian. You can have equal relationships. The studies show that women do half the work each, and it's much easier for the bringing up of children and so on. Girls are not taught that. Of course, they're not. So heterosexuality is absolutely imposed. Lesbianism is, in that sense, a breaking out. Uh, do you think it's harder now to come out as a lesbian, to actually live an authentic lesbian life for maybe someone in their 20s than it was when the society was more overtly sort of homophobic in the way that good old-fashioned homophobia happened as opposed to the homophobia which which renders your uh, lesbian daughter a straight boy do you think it's more I, do you think it's more difficult now i think it's, it's extremely difficult at this moment all that lesbian feminism created i mean we were reacting in the 70s against a world in which there was extremely little for lesbians except some sort of underground private clubs and there was no overt lesbianism. Um, we reacted against all of that. We created theory, culture, spaces, theater, discos, uh, uh, lesbian centers and so on and so on. Lesbian lines, advice. And so we created a whole community and world that lesbians could come into. And in fact, um, a, a, a student, a PhD student of mine did this fascinating research where she looked, she asked lesbians who came out in the 70s, 80s and 90s why they chose to be lesbians. And the ones who came out in the 70s said uh, they mostly chose. The ones who came out in the 80s said it was mostly, bio, uh, it was half and half. Some chose and the other half said biology. By the 1990s, they were mostly saying biology because it was no longer by the 1990s such a comfortable climate in which to come out and in which women could think that they chose to do so. So the set of ideas that are around in the society allow or disallow the way you can think about yourself and the choices you can make. 
So in the 2000s, what we have had is a real coming back of uh, biology and, and, and lesbian hating, really. There's, uh, lesbianism is so difficult now for young women that they're, they're supposed to call themselves anything else. They can call themselves non-binary. They can call themselves queer. All of this is hugely safer now than saying they were a lesbian. Whereas, of course, in the 70s and 80s, we had lesbian pride t-shirts and lesbian strength marches. None of that really is possible now, although some of us are involved in trying to bring it back, and lesbian strength marches started again last year. So, yes, it's a very, very, very difficult time. And I think the problem is that all of the, the lesbian courage and strength and pride got subsumed into a gay male culture and a queer politics that is enormously hostile to women's and lesbian interests. So any young women now who think that they are, they are lesbians because they know they're sexually attracted to other young women, uh, wherever they go, they will feel, find that people are telling them they could possibly be trans, they will not feel strong about coming out as lesbians. It's an extremely difficult culture right now. It's very um, frightening. I mean, each de decade uh, in your book, it seems to be feminism comes under a new form of attack, normally from within. So um, from, a, you know, from a layman's perspective, there was the BDSM, there were charges of racism, which kind of have rear their ugly, its ugly head every now and again, but it seems to be more about dividing uh, the feminist movement and the pushback against, um, for want of a better word, men. Uh, whether it was domestic violence and whoever was fighting domestic violence suddenly had to include men in it. Does it feel, even under every different guise, does it just feel like the same old enemy? I think it is the same enemy, but yes, the shapes and forms change. Uh, BDSM, or what we used to call sadomasochism in the 1980s, was created as a, a movement. There was gay sadomasochism, and out of that, lesbian sadomasochism. Now, sadomasochism is entirely heterosexual because you know the films like The Fifty Shades of Grey and all of the, the terrible fetishism and kink online, which is um, very seriously about the subordination of women. That's now completely normal and a part of heterosexuality. Um, but yes, it was a big threat in the 1980s, and wherever we went, there would be sadomasochists who said, you know, you cannot talk without us being here. They would hold up their flags. It's very like what's happening with transgenderism now. There are men pretending to be women who will come and say, we've got a right to be everywhere. You can't talk about us. But it's not, it's all serious now because they're actually telling us we have to change our language. We can't even really call ourselves women and they are in control of the way we behave, what we do, what we say in, in a forceful way, using the law in a way that the sadomasochists were not in the 1980s. But in terms of it being internal, what's happening is what's called horizontal hostility, which was for a, a phrase first developed to explain why in the US, for instance, in the state of New Jersey, it's mostly young black men shooting each other rather than shooting upwards to the oppressor. So horizontal hostility is the way in which people under pressure will, be, will express that pressure against each other because it's too dangerous to express it towards those in control. 
So the fact is, yes, women very often will, in different circumstances, express that pressure against each other because uh, it's too dangerous. If you think about the, the situation of male supremacy, I mean, women are murdered, harassed in extraordinary ways on the street, on the internet, in their own homes. It, it's dangerous out there. It's actually physically dangerous for women. So it's not surprising that a lot of the pressure, because it cannot be recognized in a way, recognizing how serious the situation of women is, is too dangerous. I was just reading an article today on a woman jogger in Arkansas who was um, abducted and killed while jogging. And the article said that there were five more women, four of them in 2019 in America, who were killed in this way. So this is terror. It's a state of colonization and terror, but it's very, very frightening. It means that women, you know, if they really think about it, will not be able to walk out on the streets at night or go jogging or do any of those things. So. If you don't want to recognize that, and if you can't recognize that, then it is likely that some of that distress will turn into depression and turn outwards towards women. And I think that is what happens. So would feminism, um, is it due a leader or is the nature of it just uh, leadership is not really an option? We never wanted to do leadership back in the days of the women's liberation movement in the 70s and 80s. We wanted to be very different from the left. We didn't want those ways of having a central committee that would decide what could be said and what position papers could be written and who was going to be the general secretary. We came out of the left, a lot of us, and we wanted to do it very differently. And we did do it very differently and very successfully for a time. I think there was, of course, sometimes natural leaders do emerge in situations. And it's very difficult to make that not happen. And often they get a lot of shit because there was that feeling there shouldn't be leaders. Uh, but I don't think that feminism does leaders in the way that political parties do and the left does. And we try very hard not to. Um, we are, we've had enough of the patriarchs in that way. So no, I don't think we need to look for a leader. What we need to do is consciousness raising to allow and enable women all over the world to actually think about the ways in which they're oppressed, how it goes inside their own bodies and constructs their sexual fantasies around masochism, how it affects what they put on their bodies, how it affects the way they're able to use their bodies, whether they can sit with their legs apart or not, the way they walk in the street, where they're able to go. We will need women to be able to think through all of that and become stronger and furious in themselves. So is that a lesson for, of old then? That, that's a, a lesson from the, the joy and excitement of the, the feminism you first discovered, was the consciousness raising and the, the meeting in person and exchanging ideas? Oh, absolutely. Consciousness raising was the practice where women got together in groups and talked about their experience and realized they had that experience in common. I mean, the, the, the best example usually given of this is that women would all realize they all had to say, if they didn't want to do sex with their husbands, that they had a headache because they could not simply say, because they didn't have equal power, I don't want to do that, thank you. They actually had to make an excuse so that they didn't cause the man to become probably angry. He might just do the silent treatment or he could become violent or just annoyed in a way which would be very difficult to be with in the house. So they didn't have the power to say that. So, so that was the first message of consciousness raising. If you get eight women in a room saying, oh, yes, I say that too. I always say I've got a headache. Yeah. Um, 
or I'm on my period or, or some reason why it's not possible, which isn't just that I don't like it. That's a political understanding that comes from having that conversation, which enables women to develop theory about their common situation and work out ways to fight back. So we do need consciousness raising again, which enables women to look at, for instance, you know, why do I wear eye makeup? Know, if the eight women sitting around all say, well, I do it for myself, then you can begin to unpack that and, and say, well, you know, what do you actually feel and what is it you think? And you can work out that actually it's something probably that many of them would rather not have to do. So that's the political development of ideas, which is crucial to enabling women to move forward. So these conflicts that I guess most of us who live in in this world which is not a, a lesbian feminist world um constantly we have to make uh compromises on what we know <laughs> what we've read what we know and what we do have you ever uh, are there situations even with you where you have to make a compromise on what you know and what you do well Obviously, I can't go around saying what I actually think about what's happening in the world because that would be quite difficult, quite dangerous, um, quite dangerous. I can remember bring, being on a Greek holiday in the 1970s with a woman on an island and we went to some bar and they were doing some kind of dancing that we thought was extremely sexist where the man was throwing the woman around and I protested and we got thrown out. So I think that, yes, you have to make compromises for your own security. I can remember in um, a mixed gay club in Leeds back in about 1978, there was a drag queen on and he had balloons underneath his jumper. And he came up to the table where a group of us lesbians were sitting and he leered over us and expected us to be sort of friendly and, and we, didn't, we didn't like it. And one of the lesbians present actually stubbed out her cigarette on his balloon and deflated it. Now, that was a very, very naughty thing to do, it's fair to say, but we didn't want to be patronised and leered over by a man pretending to a woman that, be a woman. That was humiliating to us and extremely offensive. So we got thrown out of that lesbian club. The bouncer uh, head-butted the small lesbian I was with down the stairs. We then had to go to hospital to have her nose set. She couldn't go to the police because she was in a custody struggle with her ex-husband about her child. So no, you cannot do things. And that lesbian should not have expressed her dislike of the drag queen. So that's how women are forced to sort of obey and not show what they really think, because actually it's dangerous to do so. So yes, I have certainly made compromises. We all do in order to survive. Uh, did you, so you, you've lived in Australia um, on more than one occasion. Uh, what made you go back? Well, we, no, I lived in Australia for one occasion. I was there for 24 years, yes. I went there in 1991 and stayed uh, for 24 years, came back in 2015 when I retired. So no, I didn't go back. The question is whether I would go back. Britain is in such a terrible state politically at the moment, and we love Australia so much that, you know, there is a big draw. But the fact is, I've got, there's lots of political work to do here, wonderful and exciting political work, and lots of women to work with. So I don't think that we're going to do that. But, you know, often there is a, a strong incentive to go back to that place that we love, which I now think of as home, interestingly enough. Yeah. 
although they're having great big problems with all the trans in kids and women being uh, prevented from speaking. Uh, you recently had Beth Rep, who was fined $10,000 for liking a post or three, which weren't even that bad. I'm sure yes. I've said worse. Yes. Yes, and in fact, prostitution is legalized in most states. So it's an extremely male supremacist country. It was a sort of, you know, a frontier country where they set up prostitution very, very early on, mainly from in indigenous Australian women and then from women trafficked in through Singapore, from places like Japan and so on. And now there are legalized brothels um, organized by the state, which gets taxes from them, the pimp state, as we call it, that actually supplies these women um, in many of there were several of them on the street where I lived. Um, and indeed, there was one next to a McDonald's in a street nearby to us. I had a, a French um, film crew come and they were making a, a, a documentary about how terrible the legalization of prostitution was. And that country then did criminalize the buyers. Um, and they photographed me outside um, the uh, McDonald's with the Scarlet Lady brothel next door. And I was saying, you get your hamburger here and you buy the woman there. And they were horrified at the situation. So Australia has a very hard, severe form of patriarchy from being that kind of frontier culture. And the edges of that masculinity have not been knocked off in many ways. So yes, at the moment, that masculinity takes the form of being extremely woke very, very positive to uh, forms of male sexual paraphilias like transgenderism and um, other forms of sexual violence like the prostitution of women and so on. It's incredibly good PR to sell women uh, their own subordination as empowerment, whether it comes from um, se so-called sex work or prostitution, lap dancing, stripping, uh, all of those things. I just think it's it's a mighty feat. It's a, it's a brilliant PR move to say to a woman that you actually have empowerment when you, you're naked with a strange man paying you to access your body. I just wonder how, what, brought, what helped usher that in? Because if we all were rigid religious conservatives, which I'm not advocating at all, which has its own problems, I wonder if we could have ushered that in quite so readily on the high street, as it were. Uh, I don't know. I mean, there's there's more religion in Australia, I think, than there is in Britain. You know, it's quite strong Roman Catholicism. In fact, um, what ushered it in? The sexual revolution. That's what I have written books about and explained. In the period of the 1950s and 60s, um, this thing called the sexual revolution, which was supposed to be so very good for women, ushered in, first of all, the de-censorship of pornography, there were all the novels like Lady Chatterley's Lover in which women are, a woman is anally penetrated and supposed to be absolutely loving it and, and all of that kind of stuff. So first of all, it was the novels which were decensored and it was said that you had to find to publish them. And then a massive pornography industry was created. It took a few decades to really get going, but it's now absolutely huge. And that pornography industry has transformed the politics and culture. Um, and and the prostitution industry came along with it, and that has transformed the way in which women are seen. It really, really has. So I think that's that's what happened. And of course, the feminist movement of the 70s and 80s, at least in Britain, rejected those values. And we saw prostitution as abusive, which is why it was so surprising to me 
when I first went to Australia in 91 to find that there were legalized brothels and that women were being advertised by their photographs in the telephone directory. I mean, it was absolutely extraordinary. You couldn't knock me down with a feather. I could not believe what I was seeing because I didn't understand this very uh, machismo type culture of Australia at that time. You know, even in Canberra, around the um, the Parliament building, there are lots of brothels heavily used by politicians and so on. It's it's a it's a little bit different what men are able to get away with there. Well, I'm 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 a mother of a fourteen year old. I've got three uh, sons, but I've got a fourteen year old daughter, and watching her discover some of the awful things that happen to women, watching her walk past a um, phone box with uh, uh, somewhere being advertised or a woman being advertised, uh, watching her walk, walk past even an underwear shop, which now we seem to think Ann Summers is some sort of great high street brand that can have really quite provocative pictures. It's, um, it's extremely difficult to, to watch that discovery that actually this is the world in which she lives, which I can get cross, turn a blind eye, and I think I'm probably make choices I'm probably a little arrogant I probably don't make as many choices as I think but watching her discover it is is terrible how how do we move how how do we fix this what do I mean conscious raising is is great but it's going to take all of us just having a single focus and working together and I think that is almost the bigger obstacle I think what what is good now is that a lot of women, feminists, and maybe some of them wouldn't call themselves feminists, have discovered what's going on in schools. They have, for instance, discovered what's being taught in RSE, which is not about how to um, refuse men access to your body, how to be strong, how to be a lesbian if you wish to, not any of those things, but actually about the existence of gender identity and about various sexual practices that you that girls might not de might definitely not wish to perform even at a young age that they're being told about. So what seems to have happened is that in the doldrums, the period when feminism was barely there, um, gay men, um, whose politics were often anti-feminist and men with transgender interests managed to get involved in the creation of sex education materials for schools with feminists and parents not even noticing what was happening. So one thing we need to do is be terribly, terribly, terribly involved in what is going on in schools and try to work out what is really good for a girl's sense of herself, her strength and her pride as a woman. And is that what is happening because that is what should be happening. At the same time, of course, we need to be doing something about masculinity because masculinity I don't see as something natural. Men are not naturally masculine, it, it, it's constructed, it's a, it's a sex stereotype. And yet it's constantly um, built up in schools in the sense that you know boys should have, because they're not very good at reading, boys need to be better at reading. They need to be able to do the sort of jobs that girls can do. But of course, boys are pandered to in this way. They only have certain sorts of interests. They, they can't really read books. Um, they need to do violent sports like rugby. All of these things that are taught to boys to actually create masculinity, and they all are still taught in schools to create men into the ruling class, they need to go. I know that's a dangerous thing to say and a dangerous thing to hear, but they have to go. We have to stop creating sex stereotyping through schools. We should be encouraging behavior that is about equality. 
and that is a very very different thing so yes i need i want a, a masculinity abolished it's not just toxic masculinity as a form of top masculinity that's not okay it's masculinity the idea that males are a certain sort of thing at all rather than humans who could possibly be equal humans with women it's masculinity which is ruling class behavior that needs to go so there's a great deal to be done and i know everybody's always blaming schools and saying schools have to do everything uh, schools can do something what we also need to do is eliminate the pornography industry and prostitution we have to eliminate these forms of violence against women so that they are not constructing the culture that young women are raised in i mean at the moment we have mainly black female rappers from the US performing semi naked as if they were in strip joints on stage and winning awards and things and becoming role models for young girls it's just the pornography industry taking over yet more of popular culture and it mainly does construct popular culture now so we have to do that so yes there are many things we can do but these are big tasks to make a world fit for a 14 year old girl to be in and it is not that world now it is not that world now oh, it's incredibly frightening especially when the rapper uh, cardi b who did the most i think it's probably the most overtly sexualized um lap dancing type video <laughs> she's actually interviewed the presidential um candidate joe biden you know she was considered a serious person <laughs> to interview a president now I think what she did is actually disgraceful. I think censorship should come back. I am quite a fan of television and media not delivering these messages at all. Um, you know, without any caveats, just not at all. Music doesn't need uh, a semi-naked woman to be good music. Um, but to then also consider her a serious person um, to interview a candidate, I think, is a, is a new low for me. I think the situation is that it is mostly black women because black women are a particularly subordinate group of women who are particularly oppressed within the sex industry. And of course, I see the performances of these women as sex industry. They are in in the sex industry in doing these performances. But I think that it's it's a part of that particular oppression that black women who are hugely overrepresented in prostitution in the U.S are forced into in order to be supposedly equal in that industry. There are huge pressures on young women, obviously, in the entertainment industry, and they usually have to give in in some way, show parts of their body, wear ridiculous shoes, and so on, in order to survive. And there are women prancing around and dancing on stages in high heels, and all the men are in ordinary shoes and loose clothing. It is utterly, utterly shocking. The subordination of women in full sight is what is celebrated in popular culture. <laughs> well, also, if you have a man who dances in stilettos, he's some sort of talented hero. Uh, whereas these women are doing it all the time. And a man just puts some heels and, and starts swinging his hips. And all of a sudden, he's the, the bravest, most talented dancer the world has ever seen. Uh, because for him, it's seen as not natural, whereas women are supposed to be naturally in pain and crippled. So um, So I, I, I realise I've kept you a really long time, so I, I try not to talk too much more. With the, um, 
the attacks on women now, and I'm particularly involved in one aspect of, of the multifaceted attacks on women, and that's transgenderism. Uh, obviously, as a lesbian, as an academic, as a, a woman who is heavily involved in all of that, did, you clearly saw this a long time ago. I can't imagine how frustrating it's been to watch what you knew was going to happen unfold. Did you think it would be as bad as it is and as widely accepted, this, this lie that these men are women? No, I didn't. I mean, back in the 1970s, there were a couple of men, transvestites we called them at the time, who wore women's clothes and tried to get into women's events. They were obviously transvestites in the way that it's meant in the DSA and the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, getting sexual excitement from masochism of wearing women's clothes and imitating women's subordination, because that's really what it's about. And they tried to get into women's events, and we were just did absolutely no. There was a bit of a discussion in the women's news newsletter. Nobody thought that these men should be involved in anything the women were in and all of our events and everything were women only in those days which these days is seen as a form of terrible rebellion um so that really wasn't a problem and indeed Janice Raymond read, wrote her wonderful book The Transsexual Empire which made clear why um it, it was absurd uh, to um suggest that men should be you know, um, able to adopt the gender identities of women and so on as it's called now then um, back in 1990, I wrote in my book Anticlimax about um, the transgendering that was taking place at that time, or tra the transsexuals, as it were. And I, I made it clear how extraordinary the, the things it was that they said that made them women. Um, they would talk about, you know, being kissed by a burly taxi driver being so wonderful because it made them feel like a woman. That's called sexual harassment. Um, one man said that he suddenly was unable to have a sense of direction when he was driving. <laughs> yes, absolutely extraordinary things. It's just terrible, terrible woman hatred and sexism within their definitions. So that was in 1990. So I think it was becoming slightly more of a problem in 1990. Then 1997, I wrote a piece on the transgendering of lesbians because that was starting to happen. Back in the 70s and 80s, women were not transgendering. There was none of that. We were out and proud. There was none of that. 1997, there was beginning to be the transgendering of lesbians, and I wrote about that as a form of violence against lesbians, yet another form. You know, lesbians have been identified as um, mentally ill and putting mental hospitals. They'd had electric shock treatment in the 1950s and 60s. I saw the transgendering of lesbians, the cutting up of medicating of their bodies as another form of terrible violence trying to um, destroy their lesbianism. But that was 97, and then in the early 2000s, I realized that much more was going on. And this was around the time of the 2004 legislation in Britain. I realized that was a serious problem. In 2007, I wanted to actually write the book that became Gender Hurts later on. But fortunately, in a way, um, publishers didn't want that book at the time. It wasn't seen as a particular problem. So by the time it got published in, in 2014, and in that book, I tried to draw together all of the threads, both the terrible harms to the bodies of the men and women who are transgendered, the anti-lesbianism, what was going on, the horrors of transgendering uh, children, which I call gender eugenics, um, the uh, terrible problems of men being put into women's spaces, even if they were rapists and, and murderers and prisons and, and so on. I tried to put all of that together in one book, which I did in 2014, and that was the right moment. 
because then there was a beginning to be a building of a feminist knowledge of what the problem was. There were few women around the world starting to speak about this. So it was the right moment for the book. It came into a wave, a rising wave of critique of this form of men's um, harmful behavior. Uh, then I think the difference between now and 2014, and I expect, I hope that I will be asked to redo that book and can write about it again, is that even in 2014, when I, I have a chapter on the clash with women's rights uh, and so on, I had no idea of what would, of the state we would get to now. It never occurred to me that women simply saying a man is not a woman on social media or whatever could get visits from the police or court cases against them. The way in which a tiny number of men with a sexual interest in wearing women's clothes has been able to control legislatures, police forces. I had no idea of that even six years ago. So something very extraordinary has happened in really a very short time. Yeah. I find it uh, just so frightening. Um, you wrote a book called Unpacking Queer Politics, and it's having somewhat of a revival, which maybe provide people with some tools and some knowledge to actually understand uh, what's going on. Why do you think that people weren't so ready for it when it was published? Do you think they, it's always that people can only see the problem when it's right smack in their face? It was in 2004, uh, sorry, 2003 that book came out, and it was at the time of the doldrums, and I don't think it was the moment when a critique of queer politics was going to be appreciated. I don't think people really saw what was happening. And so at the time, you know, it sort of sank like a stone, really. It's fair to say Beauty and Misogyny, which was published two years later, did not sink like a stone. There were people prepared to take up that critique of beauty practices. But the critique of queer in 2003, not. That is a very different situation now. In the last very last few years, maybe the last three years or so, um, young lesbians in particular have really been picking up that book and reading it and saying it's very helpful to them because they're in queer culture and politics. There's been a complete takeover of uh, queer of, of culture and politics by queer. If you just think about uh, the phenomenon of drag queens, for instance, and drag queens are obviously uh, lauded in queer culture as on the sort of spectrum of transgenderism. Well, they were just um, men who performed in women's clothes in a few little pubs in the 1970s. There was no drag queen culture. Whereas now, of course, there's a drag queen story time in schools, there's drag queen competitions for drag kids, there's RuPaul doing training sessions for women on how to do their makeup, as well as his uh, beauty pageants and competitions. It's huge. Drag is absolutely huge in culture now. So that shows the extent to which queer culture has become absolutely fundamental. Now, of course, drag is a terrible form of the mocking of women. The humor of drag is mocking and deriding women and being often very vicious and very nasty about women. For instance, you know, on, on the drag queen scene, there always was this term from a familiar in gay culture of fish for women, meaning that women's genitals stank like fish and so on. And it's an ordinary term that's thrown around in that very, very woman-hating culture. The drag culture is viciously woman-hating, I would say, and now is seen as you know, uh, uh, the, the epitome of culture in 
in many ways and in, in many situations. So I think this is a very, very, very difficult time for young people when queer politics and culture, which was once a minority, has now become so much part of what is seen as absolutely male stream popular culture. So I think for a lot of young women, and I think maybe even heterosexual feminists as well, seeing a critique of the development of queer politics and what it's always been about, and I've argued that it's always been about male sexual, gay male sexual freedom. And a gay male sexual freedom for a male sexuality, which is modeled precisely on heterosexuality, which is around um, Ag aggressive sexuality about objectification around prostitution and pornography and so on. Um, that's, that, uh, that's what I understand has, has been at the very basis of the queer movement. And it's been a political movement which has now become a culture. So it's very, very difficult for women to survive with any sen sense of strength or sense of self in a culture in which a hugely dominant cultural th theme is the, the disgusting mocking and deriding of women as, as if women are themselves disgusting. Yeah, a, a few years ago, quite a few years ago, my children were very small, um, I spent Christmas in Thailand and it was, and we didn't know where, we, my mother picked it, she'd been everywhere in Thailand, she picked up Bataya, which has got a lot of a, not a pedophiles. Not a good choice, not a good choice. <laughs> It was awful. We stayed in a nice hotel. Anyway, we would walk along in the evening uh, to sort of just along the beach. And there was a, for a start, I flew out on Christmas Day. So that was like a plane full of very dodgy men flying out to Thailand on Christmas Day in groups or on their own, but it was predominantly men. And I think that was the first time where I'd felt a mass of weight, heaviness, um, intangible just you could feel it taste it um all the the misogyny and um then when you would walk along in the evening there was a certain sort of laugh of the men and the laugh of the women that they were paying to spend the evening with that again had this weight and and I get it in waves again now with the transgenderism with the attack on women I sort of feel like for the first time if I was in a with a group of men, particularly uh, men who identify as, a, as drag queens or uh, call themselves women or trans women, I really do feel that I would feel as unsafe as I did when I was walking, when I was on that plane uh, flying over to Thailand. I feel like the, the threat is so massive. So I know you recently read Laura Bates and she talks about trans women not really having being any threat to women's rights whatsoever how are these women how are these women doing that because surely they must feel it or they're ignoring it or they're lying how are the, how are these public best-selling feminist authors um many will be excluded from that list but sort of um coffee coffee shop feminists how are they managing to not talk about feminists, this entrepreneurial feminists i think they are because they depend upon for their living on being sort of professional feminists on social media and in popular culture and so on. So the problem for them is that if they say anything, if they actually show what they really feel about drag queens or about transgenderism, they will lose their income. I mean, this is happening over and over again to all kinds of women. So I think they are very, very, very careful and they have to show obedience. They have to make obeisance 
to the idea that men can mock women in this awful way and that that's acceptable. They have to do that in order to try and protect their careers. I think, I think that's the situation. I think it's a job's worth situation. Unfortunately, you know, I was an academic, I was in a reasonably safe position, and now I'm retired, so it's easier for me to make these sort of critiques. Um, and it needs a lot of courage. It needs an extreme amount of courage, courage to do what you do, Percy, um, to actually get out there and say this stuff. Yeah, well, that's because I have a man paying the mortgage, Sheila. <laughs> well, it's a possibility, I have to say. <laughs> Well, on that note, um, thank you so much. I employ everyone to read it. I think what you managed to dispel so very effectively in this book is that being a lesbian fem a radical feminist um, is quite a joyful existence and one where you, I, I mean, it just comes through. You're, you're incredibly funny. I haven't asked you any of your stories about the, the worst of men's fetishes, which I think are the funniest stories I've ever heard. But it's just a, it's a really joyful read and I implore everyone to read it because it's a perfect journey into feminism and, and how it can both enrich and challenge your existence. Thank you very much, Percy. It's been a delight to talk to you. Of course. Thank you. Thank you. Well, there you have it. A fantastic conversation with Sheila Jeffries, a woman who I think it's fair to say has lived her life by her word, which is something I don't think many of us can actually say we, we've done. Uh, a really funny book, definitely worth reading. I, I don't care if you don't want to be a radical feminist or a lesbian, um, it's just quite a joyful read. Uh, as always, please don't forget to like, share and subscribe and do tell your friends. Uh, I think this podcast in particular will give some of you a view of the world that maybe you haven't seen before. Anyway, see you next time. Bye.